Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello people, you're listening to Movie Oubliette, a globe-galloping podcast with me, Dan, mistakenly getting a haircut too short in the midst of uh, maybe the coldest winter in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> and me, Conrad, getting to know a new dog in Cambridge, UK. <laughs> oh, I've got many questions. Uh, in this podcast, <laughs> we confer over genre films, horror, sci-fi and fantasy because... If we're all going to go a bit crazy, at least we can share our nightmares with everyone. All of you. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hello, Dan. How are you? Mm. I- I'm cold. Uh, and on the uh, on the flip side, you're very hot, aren't you, Conrad? Uh, yes. So we are staring down the barrel of 40 degree heat mm. Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit but it is the highest recorded temperature in the United Kingdom ever. And they've just put out a warning saying that we could die. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, here in Australia, we, we don't get 40 degrees. I mean, down here in Melbourne anyway, uh, that many days. But there's often uh, two or three days in our summer where we get over 40. And it's like a, oh. it's like Armageddon. It's just happened. Like you go on the street and, and the street is melting. The bins smell. There's no one around. Everyone's hiding in, in shopping malls or anywhere they can find air conditioning. It's it's a, it's a sight to be seen. It's, a, it's, a, it's not temperatures that humans should be living in for sure. No, not at all. I've just looked it up and it says it's 104, according to Google, in Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit, Right. Yep. Yep. That's toasty. People listening in, yeah, I know, people listening in Texas will probably just think, oh, you wuss. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah, people (laughs) listening in uh, Death Valley, it's like, oh, yeah. It's every single day. <laughs> it's average Thursday, yeah. And big news, Conrad, you have a new pooch in the house. I do. She's two years old, we think. Uh-huh. Uh, she is a rescue. and um, The breed? She's a German Spitz. Ooh. I don't think I've ever yeah. seen a German Spitz. No, they're quite rare, particularly in the UK. Hmm. Certainly, whenever I take her for a walk, people always stop me and say, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> because it looks like I've got either a bear cub or a fox on a leash. Yeah. Some sort of weird cross between the two. She's absolutely adorable. No trouble whatsoever. And after the first few days where she just sort of stuck to one room and wouldn't approach me, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't push it because... You know, you want to let them come to you. Yes, of course. Uh, now she's absolutely settled in and, and loves being with me all the time. And Aww. the only downside to her is that when she wants a walk, you just have to go. It's like now. I, I, I'm, 
<laughs> I'm wanting to go now. So whatever you were doing, whatever you were thinking you were doing this afternoon, put it all on hold because I'm skittering around in front of the door yeah. and this is happening. So <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's kind that. of uh, a change. <laughs> yeah, I, I really love that. I mean, Baxter, my dog, used to be like that when he was more of a puppy. But he kind of settled in a little bit and, and got used to the routine. So he's he's not so demanding yeah. of walks, but he does demand belly rubs. Yeah. Well, Amber, that's what I've called her. Amber isn't uh, isn't quite that bad. Okay. But certainly if you start a belly rub, then you will just keep being tapped until you continue with it. Yes. You have to, you have to keep it going for sort of hours. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, Makes it hard if you needed both hands to do something. Mm. <laughs> but there we go. Yes, yes, but yes. It's it's nice having a dog in the house and it's nice to rescue a dog mm. rather than have a puppy. So Yeah, yeah. oh definitely. Uh all right. So Conrad, anything in the mailbag today? Well, we have uh, the usual breed of comments from our fabulous listeners. First off on the reanimated Chinese barbecue scene from Dead Heat. Coppertop Dan said, I watched this two to three times thinking, I do not remember this scene. And then I realised that I was thinking of Red Heat with Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi. What? (laughs) (laughs) Completely different movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I would have liked to have seen that one. But there was just so many cop buddy movies in this period. Yeah. I, also with heat in the name, I mean the movie Heat as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I can understand how Dan made that mistake. Also on Dead Heat talking about zombies, Eddie Coulter said, I'm partial to the less realistic zombies like the ones in Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, mm-hmm, the zombie mm-hmm. in the Father's Day segment of Creep Show, the original Dawn of the Dead, well, pretty much most of Romero's zombie movies, and the zombie from the Poetic Justice segment from the classic Amicus 1972 film anthology Tales from the Crypt. Ah, yes, so. yes, yes. Yeah, I'm there I'm definitely more uh, more fond of the ridiculous because uh, guts everywhere zombies. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> Day, Day of the Dead is my favorite Romero movie. It's it it is almost it is almost a comedy really as well. Um, right, it's just yeah. lots of guts everywhere <laughs> it's pretty revolting the end of it but yeah, yeah. I know what you mean yeah yeah <laughs> on city of ember a wicked person pointed out that what i was looking for was vitamin d that's what we get uh, from daylight yes. so right yes that's what the citizens of ember would have been sorely lacking in living underground permanently as mm, they were mm. yes <laughs> yes And he also said, after we were talking about how the main characters are orphans, quick, name five superheroes or mythological heroes that aren't orphans. And I sat and thought for a very, very long time, (laughs) and I cannot think of a single one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just such an easy starting point in terms of story writing or screenwriting. Yeah. Yeah, it just instantly grabs your empathy. Yeah, it's like one of my favourites recently was David F. Sandberg's Shazam, which is a whole house of orphans <laughs> who get turned into superheroes by yeah. the end of that. 
uh, spoilers. So yeah, <laughs> just orphan overload. Yeah, and of course we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Surge. Hello, Surge. He said, "City of Ember is so frustratingly inert." The stakes are non-existent, all of the complications spontaneously solve themselves, and the only thing that distinguishes the protagonists is their unflinching desire to move the plot along to the next anodyne little puzzle at all costs. It was fun listening to Conrad voice his concerns about the film in this week's episode of Movie Oubliette. He had some very specific complaints. Why is that wheel so special? That were in lockstep with mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I feel validated now because I was thinking about the same strange things that Serge was thinking about watching the movie. Mm, yeah. I, I, I heard that the author wasn't very uh, happy with the movie as well. Um, and I think the, the giant mole is not in the book at all. Like, at all. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's the only th- sort of... A threatening part of the movie. Yeah, it's the only time when you feel as though there might actually be some stakes or some f- possible risk involved in yeah. the main character's quest, and it's not in the book. So in in the book, it's just, as you said, Dan Brown for kids. Yeah, but I, I mean, I haven't read the book, so I don't know how mm. or what what the details are that they've maybe watered down from the movie. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe. Readers of the book, message us. <laughs> tell us. Yes, get in touch. What's the difference? Yeah. And tell us about anything else that you would like to tell us about. Uh, we love hearing from you. Yes, before we round off the mailbag, I did want to mention a, a message that we got from James Salzberg. He is the one that picked out that I was um, from Buckaroo Bun- Bunzai on the T-shirt, the Iconicon T-shirt. Uh, he thought you oh, yes. were from the Dead Zone. Which is uh, right. <laughs> um, no, it's a good guess though. I can yeah. see it. It's 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 quite similar to Christopher Walken's teacher clothes. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and he also had a, a comment saying he was looking forward to the Dead Heat episode, uh, and then it's it just says, "Kill this guy, would you?" <laughs> Which is <laughs> one of my favorite lines from from Dead Heat. It's so good. Yeah, it is. It is. Yes, thanks, James, for getting in touch. And uh, everyone else, please carry on writing. Yeah. Let us know what you think of these these wonderful films that we uh, discuss. So, I mean, today, Conrad, what are we going to be discussing? Oh, well, uh, let me just uh, shamble on over to the Oublet to find out. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, it's a room full of mirrors. Oh. God, oh. that's not a flattering angle. Oh, they're all cracking. And they're bleeding. Ew. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Oh, good grief. There is a Blu-ray here. Hang on. Okay. Okay, I'm coming back. Mind the blood. <laughs> hey, someone's looking for you. Oh, so what do we have today, Conrad? Well, we have a very little scene, 1982 British horror film called The Sender, which Ooh. is... Directed by the much-loved art director Roger Christian, written by Thomas Baum, and starring Catherine Harold, Jelko Ivanek, Shirley Knight, and Paul Freeman. Mm, I've never heard of this movie. What's it about? 
Well, it features a young man so plagued by some unknown trauma that he shambles onto a public beach, fills his pockets with rocks and walks into the sea to drown himself in front of horrified holiday-making families. He's quickly admitted to a psychiatric hospital where Gail Farmer, a doctor who takes a compassionate interest in his case, becomes determined to unlock the secrets of his past and his vivid nightmares. But John Doe 83, as they name him, takes a rather literal approach to sharing his dreams. He unwittingly transmits them and forces people around him to experience terrifying hallucinations involving cockroaches, rats and sudden decapitations. He also receives frequent and suspiciously abrupt visits from his possessive and spooky mother who might be trying to warn Gail of the danger or kill her own son to spare the world of his terrifying telepathic powers. Will John escape from the hospital before a rival doctor experiments on his brain? Will Gail discover the truth about John and his mother before it's too late? Find out. Wow. (laughs) That's a lot to unpack. (laughs) Isn't it just? Okay, let's get to it. After the break. And we're back to talk about The Sender, a 1982 British horror film starring Jelko Ivanek and Catherine Harold, directed by Roger Christian. Dan, you said you'd never even heard of this film before, so I guess it's obvious that you hadn't seen it. <laughs> no, I'd never seen it. So <laughs> let's, let's move on to your first uh, watch of this movie. Yeah, so I caught it on TV at some point in the 90s. Right. And back in the day, you used to sort of just catch things late at night on TV and mm. you just could never find them again. Right. So I just had this really strong memory of it and some of the key sequences in it, which are very memorable and disturbing. Uh-huh. But I couldn't remember what it was called or who was in it or anything about it. So I was thrilled when Arrow Video finally did a remastered Blu-ray of it. And I sort of read the description and I went, oh, it's that movie. Mm-hmm. So it was fascinating to revisit this one because it's kind of a half-remembered dream from my teenage years. Yeah, I had the same experience with a movie called The Peanut Butter Solution. Oh, yes. I don't know how or where I saw it. Maybe it was at someone's house when I was really young, like eight years old or something, or maybe it was on TV. And I don't remember the start. I just remember the key scenes. And then I had no idea what it was called. And I, yeah, it wasn't until much later in life, maybe like into my late 20s, where I was Googling like crazy trying to find this movie. And (laughs) yeah, I finally found it. The Peanut Butter Solution. I've heard a lot about it. I know it's a very strange movie that sticks with a lot of kids who saw it. And I'm not sure how easy it is to find now. Yeah, I don't know how it might be easy it is. I would love to cover it just to bring up like repressed memories or something. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, growing up with TV or like video VHS being the only form of entertainment, 
and yeah, all of these kind of weird memories of, of movies that you kind of forgot. Yeah, it is. And I imagine that um, the generations that follow on from <laughs> me just cannot imagine a time when you could just lose things. You just wouldn't be able to find them again because yeah. they would be on TV once and that would be it. It's not like streaming. You can't just go back to it the day after. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, recently one of my friends was telling me that a lot of the early Doctor Who episodes got lost. Yeah, they did. And they and some of them got salvaged or half salvaged or like they found like unaired episodes from like Turkey or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly um, that. They would sometimes sell them to other countries and send tapes overseas so that they could rebroadcast them. Right. But then at some point you know, videotape was expensive back yeah. then. Somebody looked at this archive of old Doctor Who episodes and said, oh, we can tape over that. Wow. So, <laughs> so they deleted them all. So now there's this international search for early Doctor Who episodes and they keep finding them in a salt mine in Turkey or something. It's, oh, wow. Yeah, it's a thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, going back to The Sender, um, yeah, for me, watching it for the first time, very surprised. Mm. Very surprised this movie is not more well-known. Yeah, I did feel like it had quite clear influences by other quite renowned directors. Like, it did feel very much like a De Palma movie yes. or a Hitchcock movie at, at times with, with some of those high-angled camera shots mm. above people in the psychiatric ward. Also, similarities to um, like Polanski and Nicholas Rogue yes. with that sort of quite cerebral, like, it's one of those movies that really kind of seeps under your skin. Like, you feel really unnerved at times and really clever blocking, I think that's what it's called, just the camera movement and the movement of the actors, and it was just very kind of fluid. Yes, it's a beautiful film to look at. It's um, the debut feature film of Roger Christian, who won an Oscar for Star Wars for his set decoration ah. and was nominated for an Oscar for doing Ridley Scott's Alien, the same rolled on that one right and then won best live action short for his first short film the dollar bottom in 1980 mm -hmm. his second short black angel was shown in screenings before the empire strikes back and influenced john borman's excalibur because it was so visually striking wow yeah paramount got in touch and said hey we've got this great film that we'd like you to do and uh, he did it but then I don't know, the executives just lost confidence in it. I think they did a test screening in front of a bunch of drunk teenagers who couldn't figure out what was going on and just ditched it. It was released in only 300 screens on the 22nd of October, 82, so Halloween season, mm -hmm. and went up against First Blood Rambo Part 2, uh, Halloween 3, ah, yes. Monsignor, An Officer and a Gentleman, E.T., which was still in the chart 20 weeks later, my Favourite Year, Jinxed, a Bette Midler comedy, and Pink Floyd's The Wall. But it landed behind all of those in ninth place and vanished shortly afterwards, garnering about a million on an estimated $8 million budget. So it sank without a trace. Wow. I just don't understand why, though, because it's, it's a really well-made movie. Mm. And I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, effects and, and how it looks. I mean, that as well. But in, just in terms of writing and directing, like the choices made in this movie 
was very satisfying mm. and it's like wow this is how you make a movie this is how you write a movie like even the first scene introducing the character of John Doe the sender there's no dialogue he just wakes up by the side of a road he walks along he goes to a lake there are people watching him he puts rocks in his pocket and he proceeds to try to drown himself it's like that's so intriguing like as a viewer that I've got so many questions. Like, I'm already hooked. Yeah, and it's a very arresting shot as well because it's a single shot of him walking into the sea uh-huh. from a, a luma crane on a pontoon that had a very special lens that the cinematographer Roger Pratt constructed for the front of the camera so that it, it was basically drain pipe tubing that he put together with mirrors. Right. So that they could actually dip the camera. Oh, like a periscope. <laughs> yeah, they could periscope into the water. Like a reverse periscope. <laughs> so in this one seamless shot out in the middle of the sea, you see the character walk into the water all the way up to the camera and then go underneath the water and the camera goes with him. Wow. And you're just completely immersed in this man's soul-crushing horror. Yeah. It's such an arresting sequence, especially with Trevor Jones's score, which we'll probably talk about mm. in more detail later. Yes. But yes. yes, you're right. The setup is like, wow, visually and story-wise, this is incredible. Yeah, it's one of those movies where there's just the right amount of dialogue and there's just the right amount mm. of exposition and the right amount of letting the audience figure it out. Like, it didn't treat the audience as idiots. It wasn't just spelling things out. No. Throughout the entire film, I was trying to figure, oh, what's that? What's this? What's this? And often, most of the time, they were answered. The ending, I'm not sure. We can talk about that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it has so many similarities to other films because of three types of movies that it is. So, obviously, John Doe has powers. He projects his dreams and nightmares onto the world and other characters experience the nightmares as if they're actually happening. Yeah. Uh, which is a really interesting concept. Yeah. I mean, it is a hallucination, but it is actually happening at the same time. But once he wakes up or his dream is gone, everything just reverses back to how it was before. It's such an interesting premise. So I, I was thinking of, of movies like The Fury, Doctor Sleep. There's a TV show called Legion, where there's a character, spoilers here, I think it's the son of Professor X that has a lot of psychic powers. Oh. Um, and obviously, Carrie as well uh, is very similar to this movie. And then you've got the psychiatric ward setting, yes. which is really interesting. And so you've got movies like One Flew Over the Cooker's Nest and A Girl Interrupted and Shutter Island, I was thinking of, and Gothica. Oh, yeah. um, and Nightmare on Elm Street 3 as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then sort of another aspect of the movie is the mother figure, which was really interesting um, in how she's portrayed. So there are so many like levels in this movie. It's like three movies combined together, but really well. Normally I would complain about, oh, there's too many ideas here but they all work they do all work because they're all woven in beautifully Mm. and it feels like because this is 1982 and it sank without a trace i think a lot of filmmakers saw this movie yes i think it influenced a lot that came afterwards Mm. what's unique about it is how serious it is yeah it's not 
melodramatic or exploitative, but every now and again it's like really shockingly disturbing and gory. Mm. And it makes those scenes so hard-hitting because everything else has been such a staid drama but the whole time the camera is constantly moving and prowling and the whole thing is just creepy as hell Mm. there's just something about it that gets under your skin while you're watching the movie yes i think that the drama aspect because it takes its time with the characters and their character development and it is mostly a drama you you actually are invested Mm. and so when something really shocking happens like you are invested in these characters it's kind of like there's that Japanese horror movie audition. It's 99% a drama. Yeah. Like, I mean, a pretty weird drama. But then when the horror scenes happen, it's like mind-blowing. Like it's like jaw-on-the-floor type scenes. Like, yeah. wow. The finale of that film is just like a, mm. uh, 20 minutes of just pure white-knuckle terror because yeah. it seems to come out of nowhere. But I felt the same in this movie. Like some of those scenes are just, mm. holy crap. Yeah. Even effects-wise, I've never seen something like that. Even now, like this came out in 1982. Like really, really impressive effects and yeah the just very deliberate choices i think made with how it's shot the lighting of the mother character and how she's kind of cold blue lights on on, yes. on, on all the scenes so she has this kind of ethereal ghostly quality to her yeah i think also the setting of the psychiatric ward whereas with a lot of these psychic movies with teenagers or, or younger characters it's always a school mm-hmm. i'm like I've, we've seen that yeah so it was a nice change of setting it is a nice setting and it's all shot mostly all the indoor shots it's all at shepparton isn't it in the in the uk right is that, is that where all movies in the UK were shot? <laughs> Around about this time, because Alien was Shepparton as well, wasn't it? And it's Was Legend shot there as well? No, Legend was the Bond oh, stage, yeah, because right. they burnt it down, um, which <laughs> they could easily have done to Shepparton in this movie too. But yeah, so it's shot at Shepparton. It does have a lot of crossovers with Alien because Nick Alder, who did the special effects, the on-set effects on Alien was also working on this movie, creating all of those bravura sequences. But the production design as well, is it's incredible. I mean, all of those hospital sets look amazing. It looks like an old repurposed building. It's not too gothic. It's not too clean and perfect. Mm. It's not too clinical. And then there's the operating theatre, which is like this stainless steel hexagon with like a cathedral-like dome over the Mm, top of it where mm, people mm. can observe what's happening inside. Every visual aspect of it is just astonishingly good. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, All the exterior shots were filmed in Georgia, though, right? In Mm. America. Yeah, so you get that authentic American flavour to the exteriors. So, yeah, they were Georgia and Atlanta. Because it was set in America, right? All the actors are American? Well, the main characters are... so. Catherine Harold and Jelko Ivanek are American. So Shirley Knight, mm. the mysterious mother mm. figure. But um, many of the others are British actors, especially Paul Friedman, who most people will recognise as Rene Belloc from Raiders of ah. the Lost Ark the year before. Right, yes. So he's Dr. Denman, the rival doctor mm. who wants to cut open John Doe's brain to find out how he works, basically. Right, right, right. So yeah, you've got a lot of British faces that people might 
might recognise, for example, the improvisational comedian John Sessions, who was very famous for his long tenure on Whose Line Is It Anyway with Greg Proops for years. Mm. You've also got a lot of Canadian and American expat actors who were in the UK and showed up in a lot of big American productions during that period, like Superman and Star Wars. And I might talk about one of them during the trivia section. Yeah, yeah. Even some of the tiny characters like Marsha Hunt, who plays one of the nurses, she was from Howling 2 and Dracula AD 1972, which I haven't ever seen. Yeah. And Al Matthews as well, uh, who plays like one of the sort of Vietnam vet patients in the hospital. And he's from Aliens. Yes. As Gunnery Sergeant Apone? Apone? Yes, Apone. Apone. Yes, the sergeant, the one that's in charge of them all. And Al Matthews was a Vietnam veteran himself with two purple hearts among his many distinctions. Mm. Sadly, he passed away in 2018. But yeah, it's weird to see him in this movie. But again, an expat that's clearly just cleaning up in terms of getting roles in all of these productions that are made at Pinewood and Elstree and Shepparton in the UK mm. during the late 70s and early 80s. And that's why he shows up in Aliens. Right, yeah, yeah. I don't really know Shirley Knight as a actor. I looked through her filmography. I have seen Grandma's Boy and Our Idiot Brother. Both not great movies. <laughs> so... <laughs> Call me on Shirley Knight. Yeah, no, I don't know her very well either. I think she is from a different era than the ones that we may have been exposed to the most. So she won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for The Dark at the Top of the Stairs right. in 1960 and Sweet Bird of Youth in 62. So she is a multi Oscar winner and a Tony Award winner for her work on stage as well. So the 50s and 60s, I think, was her heyday. So oh, when it, she was okay. suggested as, would you like Shirley Knight to play the mother in this movie? Roger Christian said, surely we can't get her. And Paramount said to him, actually, she's not getting much work these days. Wow. But she's okay. incredible. She is amazing. Yeah. Chilling, but also quite sweet and dangerous she walks a fine line really carefully yeah yeah as yeah. do all of the cast yeah i mean she's in one of those scenes which you kind of expect in these kind of movies with people with mental illness where she's in the scene and then the camera kind of pans away and then she's gone yes so like you, you're, you're constantly trying to figure out is she just a hallucination is she actually there is she a ghost it's really uh, cleverly done. It is, and they don't cheat. So things like when Gail Farmer, played by Catherine Harold, is quizzing this mysterious woman that's just showed up in her office and claims that new patient she's treating is her son. She says, can you tell me his name? And she doesn't answer. Yeah. Logically, I think it is because she is a projection of John Doe's He's dreaming about her. Yeah. And she doesn't know his name because he doesn't at that point. Right. Either. Right. Because he's right. suffering from amnesia. So she doesn't actually know it. That's why she doesn't tell her. So the logic doesn't cheat. Yeah. But also the way the movie ends, you're kind of left unsure really what's going on anyway. Shall we address the ending? Because that's the only iffy part I have about this movie. Like, for the most part, I thought it was incredible and I enjoyed every moment. But the ending just left me a bit puzzled. Mm. So did he kill his mother? Or did she accidentally kill herself? Or did she actually kill herself? It's not clear. Was she locking him up? Was she abusing him? Keeping him from the world? 
I don't know. Neither do I. None of it is resolved. And because Jelko Ivanek's performance as John Doe is so deliciously complex, yeah. he's disarmingly vulnerable, he infantilizes himself, he walks like a toddler sometimes and sits on the sofa and puts his knees under his chin like he's 10 years old or something, mm. but he's in his early 20s. But at other times, he's quite chillingly disturbing and threatening and it looks like he could explode at any moment, and sometimes he does. It's so finely done, and I think at the end of the movie, you're not really clear whether the mother is his projection of her. He's not a reliable narrator at all. We have no idea what their relationship was or who this woman really was. We only know that she's dead in the house, yeah, and he is alive, and the rest of it it's entirely up to you whether you think he is an innocent, traumatised person who's been abused or whether actually he's very, very manipulative and he yeah. knows exactly what he's doing. Because especially with that last shot of him getting into the vehicle and then his mother like reaches over. Yeah. Like, so she's still alive. She didn't get blown up in the cabin, her projection or her yeah. manifestation blown up so i don't know so did he orchestrate the entire thing everything he made it all happen and he was fully aware of it and he's just gonna keep doing it i i don't know so many questions so many questions so it doesn't resolve itself it's a delicious mystery and you can interpret it many different ways but it's not frustrating for all of that no i mean i will say the original ending as scripted I think both of us would have hated. Right. It okay. was the talking cure of the 80s, you know, the psychiatry cures all by just getting people to expose their trauma, cut through their amnesia, talk about it, and then there's a big dramatic explosion, either emotionally or <laughs> literally in this case. Right. And then everything is resolved. Mm -hmm. And I think the final scene as scripted was John Doe and Gail Farmer having a kiss. Mm as though there's some sort of romance between the two, which has never no. been hinted at throughout the whole thing. No. And Roger Christian said they tried it, but none of them felt that it was right. So they came up with this ending where he walks out of the building, gets in a car and his mother's there. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. And all of them felt that that was better. I think that was a good choice. I liked the fact there was no romance. No. I liked that they weren't trying to push that very Hollywood agenda on pretty much everything that came out in the 80s and 90s regardless of genre as well so you have action movies where they're falling in love in one day whilst trying to escape dying so i like that gail was more almost like a mother figure i wouldn't say she was a love interest at all i feel like she was a substitute for his mother because she was nurturing she was more sympathetic whereas his mother was the complete opposite or his projection of his mother anyway very cold not nurturing yeah trying to keep him from the world and possibly even trying to kill him to keep him with her in the afterlife. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's very different. Now, I really like Gail Farmer. Catherine Harold is, again, not an actress I know particularly mm. well. Me neither. But she's very credible as a psychiatrist who, 
who knows what she's doing. She's very experienced. She's got his number from the very beginning when he's first admitted and he's being really uncooperative. And she calls him on the fact that if he really wanted to kill himself, he wouldn't have done it in daylight in a public place in front of dozens and dozens of people. Sure, yes. So it's obvious that it's a cry for help. But at the same time, she's nurturing towards him and brushes the hair off his forehead. Mm. So she knows that he needs a maternal figure to open up and quickly zones in on what the source of his trauma probably is. She's great. She knows when to challenge him and when to push him and she won't take any nonsense. Mm. But at the same time, she is compassionate towards him. And I completely buy her as a professional in this hospital. Yes. She's not treated very well, it has to be said, <laughs> by her male colleague. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, not at all. But I did like the dynamic between them because she she was much more treating psychiatry as, you know, you can talk about it, you have to just work through it. Mm. Whereas he was all about electric shock. <laughs> let's <laughs> drill a hole in his skull. Yeah. Uh, let's do all that. <laughs> Drugs, you know, that's... <laughs> he was very much more about the science of, of treating humans. Yeah, and arguably he's more interested in potentially writing a paper and getting famous or whatever. Yes. And she's more interested in helping John Doe move on with his life mm. and have a productive existence, <laughs> which is much more um, commendable on the whole. But it is sad that when Dr. Denman senses her objection to his proposed treatment for John Doe, mm. that he just lashes out at her all the time about being, you know, you're too emotional. Why are you so upset? And you're just jealous of this mother figure. As soon as she turns up, you suddenly become irrational. So it's this whole thing of mm. women in the workplace, if they show any kind of conviction about anything, they're being irrational and need to be discredited. Whereas men, if they do it, they're strong and powerful. Sure. So it's that kind of bullshit. But I I don't think the film is on Dr. Denman's side. No. I think it's on Gail Farmer's side, so it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's one of those films where it's quite rare that nothing dates badly yeah. it kind of it shows all the bad parts of the profession and the time but not in a good way you know and they're not congratulating each other on on how misogynistic they are or you know <laughs> on, on how great electroshock therapy is it's, it's kind of highlighting how bad that is yeah and so it dates very well yeah, I think so. I mean, you could say that it's dated in the sense that, you know, it's the woman who is the nurturing believer who's compassionate, and it's the man who is the pragmatist and the scientist, which is the dynamic they deliberately switched in The X-Files uh, ah. when that series launched with those two characters. But actually, both of them quickly believe in John Doe's ESP. They quickly come to the conclusion that it's real and it's just their approach to how they're going to a deal with it and b investigate it she wants to help him mm. he wants to either control him or exploit him i mean that's one thing i've never seen on film where a big esp moment happens and everyone collectively experiences that occurrence as well which is yeah wow like i mean We'll talk about that scene probably in the moods, but... Yeah. And so immediately everyone just thinks, oh, yes, it's real. <laughs> it's definitely real. I just experienced it. Yeah, in fact, it becomes a part of life at the hospital, which I will also talk about in the moods. <laughs> but 
Um, those sequences are astonishing, the practical effects in them that Nick Alder pulled off. Some of them they would never be able to do now, such as a whole room spontaneously bursting into flame with all of the principal actors in it. Right. And it's wow. not CGI. Of course it isn't in 1982. It's those um, bars with gas and flame coming out of them just strategically placed in layers around the camera so that it appears as though they're right in the middle of it. But they do have a safe path out and the cameramen were allowed to be in there for a certain period of time and then they had to go out and get oxygen and be damped down and then they could go back in for another five minutes. It's just technically an amazing achievement, some of these sequences. Yeah, I mean, even a simple sequence like the truck sequence where I think they did somehow managed to rig a truck so that they could have a driver hidden from sight still being able to drive the truck Mm. it's really well done it's seamless all of it there are no composite shots there are no all of it is in camera so it's makeup and special effects in the sense of actually on set being engineered Mm. to happen on screen and as a result None of it dates, really. No. All of it is pretty convincing, and it's shot very well, very purposely chosen mm. where to cut and how much to show yes. so that it holds up even now. Yes, agreed. Now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what mysterious piece of trivia did somebody dream into your head today? Well, we did talk about the actor Al Matthews, uh, who plays Mm -hmm. the Vietnam vet patient, uh, who was in uh, Aliens. He was also in Tomorrow Never Dies as Master Sergeant 3, Superman 3 as Fire Chief, and in Fifth Element as General Tudor. Um, But he was also famous in the 70s as a singer. So uh, his song Fall reached number 16 in the UK singles charts in 1975. Um, Really? He's had a pretty interesting career. Wow, what an amazing guy. I never knew that. And I don't know the song at all, but before my time, even my time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I did look it up on YouTube. I haven't heard the song. It's a good song. It's a good song. Ah, and that's our trivia. Yes. Another aspect of the film we should probably talk about is um, Trevor Jones's music. So are you familiar with Trevor Jones? I, I don't know. Maybe I, I have just never remembered his name. But looking up his movies, Wow. A lot. And a lot of movies I really love. And a, a huge range of movies as well. So Notting Hill, Dark City, From Hell, mm. Brassed Off, a British movie from the 90s that I really like about a, a brass band. Well, I can't remember. I can't quite remember. Yeah. And then uh, In the Name of the Father, Cliffhanger, Labyrinth, yeah. The Dark Crystal. I mean... Impressive. It is impressive. He's, he's yeah. got a hugely impressive filmography. He has, yeah. Last of the Mohicans was another one of the big ones he did in the 90s where he was nominated for a Golden Globe and a BAFTA. Didn't win, unfortunately. Yeah, his career really starts with Roger Christian. He did the scores for those shorts that I mentioned. Mm. And 
was brought along to do the sender with him. And then Gary Kurtz, one of the producers on the Star Wars movies, said, oh, I'm doing this film called The Dark Crystal with Jim Henson. Do you think Trevor could score that? Do you think he'd be good for it? And uh, Roger Christian said, yes, definitely. And if you listen to the two, they're quite similar Ah. Even though they're for different topics, just sonically, the choice of orchestra, choir, synthesizer, and some interesting choices in terms of wind instruments, like the tenor recorder for the theme. Right. But it's rich, dense, mysterious, powerful music. I mean, he doesn't hold back. And through some of those explosive, literally explosive ESP sequences, there's some really experimental synthesizer work going on that sort of crosses over between score and sound design. Yeah, it does. Because you're kind of not sure what you're hearing. Like you're almost hearing a scream but then it's kind of like a buzzing sound. Yeah. And then there's this almost, it almost sounds like the TARDIS in the background <laughs> going whoosh, whoosh, yeah. whoosh. And then you've got a choral layer, like this almost atonal choir singing. Yeah. It's really interesting score-wise. It is, yes. Yeah, hair-raising stuff. And then on top of that, this really lovely theme that's sort of childlike, sort of melancholy, but also a little bit disturbing at the same time. So it's very carefully done and very thoughtfully done. Yeah. Is it that harp theme that you're talking about, that kind of descending? Yeah, the mysterious one. I quite like, but the theme that opens the movie. Oh, with the recorder? Yeah, with the recorder, yeah. Melancholy, solitary theme as he's walking along the road. Yeah, I I found it almost retro, like almost 60s or 70s. Mm. Like it had that very sort of hippie vibe to, especially just using a recorder as well. Yeah. It has that folky sound to it. Yeah, it does. But it's uh, also layered with lots of synthesizers and well-chosen ones too. I mean, they don't sound cheesy or dated. They're just sonically very interesting textures that are layered in there. I didn't even really notice the synth the first time I watched it. It, it, They're Mm. kind of laid in there so they don't stick out too much and they're not too electronic sounding. I found even the scene with the truck as well, the truck dream sequence with a really percussive, odd time signature. There's like a xylophone in there or something. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> the variety in the score is, is really interesting. The action sequences are probably the least successful parts of the score. I think that's a bit sort of on the nose. Uh, crazy that yeah. one. But it, I mean it still works. It does. It, still it works. does. It does. I was just really impressed with the variety the instrumentation and also like still with clear themes that you could hear Mm. coming back as well that did symbolize certain characters or certain uh, emotions I did find the score did a lot of heavy lifting in terms of establishing the tone Mm. of scenes that scene with Gail in her house I was so tense the entire time with the score. And when it kind of subsided and like faded out, I felt like I was like, oh, oh, I can relax now. <laughs> it, was, it was really well done. It is, yeah. And that's probably one of the most stereotypical sort of lone woman at night investigate strange sounds sort of moments. Yes. But at the same time, because of how it's shot and what happens mm. in that sequence and the score... It's not sort of stereotypically going for jump scares. It's just sort of creepy and what is happening and Mm. serious in tone. 
and creepy as hell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, additionally to the score, the sound design was amazing. Mm. The dynamic range between very quiet. Like a lot of the movie is very, very quiet. The scores mixed really low, not a lot of dialogue, just a very quiet movie. And then you have the scenes, the impactful, crazy dream nightmare scenes where everything's really loud. And so you feel this kind of bombardment of sonic, I don't know, like it felt like you were feeling the nightmare like that rat scene was just like holy crap like (laughs) (laughs) breaking my speakers loud the screeching yeah it's terrifying it reminds me um the live stream we did during iconicon talking to the producers of the special director's edition of star trek the motion picture some of those sequences where they're going through a wormhole or where they're being probed by vija and they create these really oppressive sonic experiences that come out of nowhere and really stand out in the movie Mm. Um, and it's just unusual i don't know it feels like it's unusual to see that kind of attention to detail in 1982 but roger christian says on the commentary that for him the soundtrack is half the movie he really cares about the soundtrack oh yes uh, another scene where, where the sound was used really interestingly was there's that scene where they're playing ping pong mm. and then there's just like layers upon layers of the ping pong sound effect or the ping pong table on top of each other with echo and it just sounds so weird. Mm. And it's yeah, it's just another dream sequence. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the, one of the most shocking ones because it ends with him palming somebody's head straight off their neck. <laughs> just... <laughs> yeah. just I don't know, face palming somebody's head off. It's very odd and yeah. very shocking because you were not expecting it mm, at all. No. And I think it must have been gorier originally than we see in the film because there is a very famous still that's reproduced in the CD I have of the score and the booklet in the Blu-ray that I have of uh, the Messiah. It's one of the other patients who thinks he's Jesus. Mm. His severed head on the floor next to the broken television. Oh, right. And that is not a shot you get in the movie. No, no, no. So I don't know how much is on the cutting room floor, but that shot is not <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Okay, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite mummy issues, parts of the film, in the number of (laughs) mirror-bleeding categories. Best quote. I suspect we may have the same favourite quote, but it comes from the uh, other patient in the ward who believes that he doesn't have a father because he's Jesus, he is the Messiah. Uh And at one point, he walks up to John Doe and he says... You think your Jesus spits on the floor and then says, walk on that. <laughs> <laughs> it, you, you, are, you are 100% right. That was my favorite quote. But that, that's such a line that you would hear, like, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger say or something, like in an action movie. It's such an action one-liner. <laughs> it is, yeah. That's a good, But, I mean, character-wise, it works really well where they've placed it in this movie. Oh, it's great. And... Um, 
It's delivered brilliantly by the actor who plays the Messiah, Sean Hewitt, a British actor mm-hmm. who had worked with Roger Christian on his short movies. And yeah, mm. <laughs> that's, that's a, a great fantastic line. quote. Best hair or costume? Uh, I think the most striking would be John's uh, scarlet red. Is it like a sports jersey or a blazer? Uh, and it's yeah, re- I think they call them Letterman jackets, don't they? Just because they have a letter on them. I don't, yeah, is it, it's is got it a, a college football thing. It's got a big C emblazoned on the front of it. Um, yeah. You never find out what school he was from or what it, what it meant. But just red, the use of red, because there's hardly any colour in terms of the wardrobe mm-hmm. in this movie. A lot of either clinical colours or like muted colours. A lot of knit wear, a lot of comfort wear. Um, yes. <laughs> Gail is, just looks very comfortable all the time. Like nothing tight <laughs> or ill-fitting or lycra or anything like that. So yeah, I, the, his jersey jacket blazer does stand out, uh, especially in one of the dream sequences where he's on the floor covered in rats. And you immediately oh, God, know yeah. who he is because he's wearing that item of clothing. Yes, it's very clever. Well, you were talking about Gail's clothes. They did very particularly dress her down. And Catherine Harold was quite keen not to be a sex pot doctor yes. just because it was a movie. So she's just wearing very sensible clothes, except serious demerit for the scene where Gail thinks that she's been broken into at night. And she is wandering around in the most ridiculous choice of nightwear. It is the whitest, most see-through, shortest nightshirt I have ever seen. Would you really (laughs) wear that? What's the point in wearing it? You can see everything, especially when she bends over to look out the window at one point. And surely it would just end up round her ears by morning uh, if she were sleeping in it. So I... I don't know, it just rings of the get the heroine into the smallest, whitest underwear you possibly can, like a Ripley in Alien. Yeah. Sort of disease that some films have. Most 80s moment. My pick for the most 80s thing in this movie is the fact that when there is an explosion, it is filmed from 86 different slow motion angles wow. and you yes. get to see all of them. But I loved it though. I loved it. And I know. What an impressive explosion. Yes. I mean, and it looked real. It didn't look like a miniature. Was it a miniature? It looked no, real. No, it's not. They blew up a full-size cabin. And the director said to the special effects guy, uh, how hard a punch is this going to be when this goes off? And he walked up to him and punched him in the chest and said, about that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's accurate. <laughs> Yeah, and the neighbours complained. Apparently, uh, the village of Shepperton was not happy because it had to happen at night. So everybody was in their beds, and all of a sudden, their the oh windows were shaking. Yeah, they were not happy. Favorite <laughs> scene. I did really like the scene in Gail's house when she's investigating the the broken glass that she's hearing. Like there are hardly any mm. cuts. There's, I think there are only four cuts in the entire scene. Um, right. Really long shots, lots of movement with the camera following Gail through her house as she's turning lights on and off. Great use of darkness and lighting. I don't know why anyone 
would have their front door being just a pane of glass. Like, a, why would you do that? Why would you put your have your front door just being glass? I don't know. So when she opens the blind to see if there's anyone outside, it's just like, oh my god, so tense. It's just a really, really creepy scene. And then obviously the score is so creepy, super, super creepy. Mm. Without. Any jump scares, no big stings to give you a fright. Ugh. And even when the the cops show up in the kit in her kitchen, I'm still really unnerved by that because they just appear out of nowhere, and she turns yeah. the light on, and they're just in her kitchen. Two men, yeah, such a great scene. Yeah, it is. It's a fantastic piece of work, just in terms of setting the tone of the movie, which is, yes. We are going to creep you out, but we're not going to give you an easy out and mm. an easy release of tension here. We're just going to keep simmering it yeah. throughout the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. And favourite scene for you? My favourite scene uh, is the card scene, ah. which is a scene where I think Gail Farmer is convinced of his telepathic abilities, John Doe's abilities, and she tests him. He's playing cards with another patient and she tests him. She says, hold up a card, look at it. And then she tries to guess what it is. And it, it's just so beautifully edited and performed from Jelko and Catherine Harold. It's sort of slowly mounting tension and just sort of this sense of malice behind his eyes as he keeps picking these cards up and she keeps guessing and she's wrong every single time she guesses she's wrong. Mm. And he thinks he's been so clever. And at the end she says, do you know how unlikely that is? A hundred percent wrong is just as unlikely as me getting it a hundred percent right. So she knows that he's done it on purpose and it, it's oh, I don't know there's just something so tense and and thrilling about mm, it that mm. I I just I love it yeah <laughs> it's great yeah it really was most cliche moment the obvious choice uh it's a horror got to have bugs you got to have rats mm-hmm. if if, the, if only oh, yeah. they had snakes they would have had the the creepy crawler tri- trifecta <laughs> but um yeah bugs and rats in this movie Yes, my cliche was overbearing religious mother, which (laughs) you've seen, yeah, so many times before. Yeah, Carrie. I mean, it all starts with Norma Bates in Psycho. There's possibly antecedents to that, but Margaret White in Carrie, Pamela Voorhees in Friday the Thirteenth, Vera Cosgrove in Brain Dead. The Mother in Goodnight Mommy, which is a very creepy movie. And of course, uh, Henrietta Dodd in The Dead Zone, which we've looked at Ah, as well. So, yeah, any overbearing religious mothers out there, they always end up creating slightly odd children, Mm. (laughs) supposedly, in horror movies anyway. Best special effect. Special effect, the entire electroshock scene. The, it was just everything, <laughs> everything you could ever want. Uh, people f- seeming to be floating into midair, crashing it through glass in slow motion, uh, or into trays in slow motion. I loved it. I loved it. It was it was weird. 
it was shocking. Yeah, it's just expertly done and and just a, a obvious collaboration between Nick Alder and Roger Pratt and Roger Christian, mm. the cinematographer and the director, just doing all of it in camera, practically on set in a way that would stand the test of time right up until now. Yeah, yeah. as, as a, a, a close second, I would also say the bleeding mirrors. Because um, I've never yes. seen that before. <laughs> I've seen bl- blood no, come out of mine. blood come out of things in horror movies, but mirrors! Wow. Yeah, it's the fact that the the mirrors dis- and again all practical. The mirrors distort and crack while she's looking at them, which is disturbing enough because it's creating these distorted images of her face, yeah. and then breaking and the sound make that sound really dangerous and nasty, mm. and then blood starts pouring out of them, and it's happening all around them because there's a really weird large number of mirrors in this room <laughs> but yeah and it's just uh pistons and blood bags it you know just simple as anything but incredible it mm. just looks amazing and really creepy yeah favorite sound effect my favorite use of sound in this movie is during the car chase because it starts off in complete silence with just music, Uh which is very, very strange and disarming. There's no foley at all until Jocelyn's car slowly advances on Gail's car before the the full-on chase starts. And the sound of her tyres across the wet tarmac just makes this really sinister hissing noise it's almost like she's a snake slithering into the shot mm. and it breaks the uh, the silence on the sound effect track and it yeah i thought oh this is good <laughs> they've thought about this very carefully mm. in terms of mounting the suspense and the horror in this scene yeah yeah for sure uh sound for me uh, I mean, obvious would be go going back to the electroshock scene uh, when when he when they first put the electroshock equipment on his on his temple and and there's that buzzing sound that you can't figure out whether it's a buzzing or a screaming or it's just really unnerving and also going back to the bleeding mirror scene that oozy blood sound. It's so oozy. <laughs> you, it, it feels very thick. It sounds very, very thick, that blood. It does, yeah. Ugh. <laughs> it's so disturbing, that scene. Yes. Most funniest moment. This is unintentionally funny. Uh, it's the scene where they're watching the TV and it's got that broadcast and it keeps repeating over and over and over and over. Then John Doe gets uh, mad and, and starts trying to smash the TV and he cannot break that TV. He just hits it and hits it and kicks it and it's on the floor. And wow, TVs in 1982, they just don't make them like they used to. It's unbreakable. Yeah, that's quite deliberate. Actually, Nick Alder constructed an an indestructible television because, of course, they had cathode ray tubes inside them. I mean, it's not a good idea to break these things. A vacuum, yeah. So, yeah, it's not a good idea. So, um, yeah, it was an impenetrable TV that Jelko was given to wail against. (laughs) I just thought it was hilarious. I mean, it was disturbing, (laughs) but hilarious. 
It was, yeah. For me, I think it's the moment when Gail calls the hospital after seeing the the vision of John Doe dead in her bedroom, covered in rats, even with them coming out of his mouth. Mm. And she picks up the phone and calls the hospital quickly to say, John Doe's having a nightmare. And you cut to the hospital oh, with yes. the nurse in the foreground. <laughs> All hell is breaking loose behind her. Every patient is climbing the walls and screaming. Mm-hmm. And the nurse just says, tell me about it. <laughs> it's like, this patient's psychic projections have become so run-of-the-mill at this point. It's like, oh, God, John Doe's off again. Yeah, oh, not another one. <laughs> uh, okay. And that's our movies. Yes. Hi, this is Duncan Skiles, director of The Clofitch Killer, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. It's the most crucial part of the podcast, the final verdict. Should 1982's The Sender be freed from the resident Oubliette psychiatric ward to terrorise the masses and be adored? Or should it be dropped back into the Oubliette to replay its past traumas over and over again and be lost forever? (laughs) Conrad... Well, I don't think it'll come as any surprise, people, that <laughs> having rediscovered this movie after it spooking the hell out of me as a teenager on TV in the 90s, that closer examination and repeat viewing of this film has just made it go up in my estimation. It is so meticulously crafted by Roger Christian and the rest of his team. It's so well performed by Jelko Ivanek, who went on to become... Uh, quite the successful character actor. I mean, if you look at his list of credits, he lost his hair and just started appearing in everything, right. every TV show that you can imagine and every movie you can imagine he's in um, as one of the background characters. Mm. It's finally honed in terms of uh, the effect that it wants to create. It is disturbing. It is unsettling. It's a combination of the the story, the performances, the camera work, the music. And then there are these explosive scenes of just incredible visions that come out of this telepathic character that are really remarkable. Uh, If you love Brian De Palma, as you've said, Dan, I mean, anybody that loves his bravura slow motion sequences are going to love all of the dream Mm. sequences in this. And they have practical effects, the like of which you do not see anymore. And they stand the test of time and just amazing to look at. And overall, I think the film is just fascinating. It's a really interesting character study, a really mystifying story that doesn't quite tie itself up at the end. And the more you watch it, the more you get out of it. So I I don't know why this didn't take off at the time. I do know it's got a cult following. Quentin Tarantino has raved about it. In fact, he raved about it so much that he recommended Roger Christian as a director to John Travolta when he wanted to make Battlefield Earth. Mm. So poor Roger Christian has that on his CV as well, (laughs) which is a terrible shame. So ignore that. Go back to this. This is an incredible piece of horror thriller filmmaking and deserves to be out of the oubliette. Yep. What Conrad said. Every, uh, <laughs> all of that. All of that. I'm really surprised Roger Christian hasn't done other great films. Because mm. you look at his filmography and it's it's a bit atrocious. Like the, these it are is. not these are not great movies. Like Battlefield Earth is not a great movie. 
Uh, there's another movie, Stranded, which I, I've been told is just awful. All of his movies are, are rated lower than five uh, out of ten on IMDb. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't understand because this movie, The Sender, is is just phenomenal. Like, it's yeah. for me, this is my favorite film that we've covered on the Oubliette this year. Wow. This year. In terms of a movie okay. I'd never seen before, it's, it's such a great movie. It's so well-crafted, <laughs> and it doesn't treat the audience like idiots, um, but it, it answers most of the questions that you have during watching the movie, but still leaves some things ambiguous, so you think about it over and over mm. when, when after you've watched it. And, and yeah, watching it again, you notice other parts that you hadn't noticed before. It's, it's kind of like the sixth sense. It's it's so watertight with with, with its mm. writing and, and, and how it's uh, been directed. And, and I would highly, highly recommend anyone that hasn't seen The Sender to watch it. it I'm, I'm so shocked that I had not seen this movie before. It's... It really is a, a great movie. Well, I'm thrilled to hear you say that because, I mean, one of the reasons that we started this podcast was so that we could show each other movies sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's great to discover them together, yes. the double blinds, or to have other people bring movies to us, like uh, Dead Heat, which we really enjoyed. Mm, yeah. But one of the reasons we did it was so that these weird nuggets of movie making gold that we were aware of, we could show to each other and see what your reaction is. And uh, this is one that I've been really looking forward to showing you. Yeah. And I'm thrilled that you enjoyed it this much. I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. And I was kind of glad I, I'm not discrediting your taste in movies, but they do <laughs> tend to be from the 80s with children as main characters and it was just <laughs> yeah. nice and refreshing not to have that <laughs> yes yeah. <laughs> yeah i think we've exhausted all of those <laughs> at this point so yeah you're going to get a classier uh, range of movies from now on maybe <laughs> yeah yeah well highly highly enjoyable this film yeah okay well i'll just uh put the sender in his red jacket here and Send him on his way. Keep away from your mum. <laughs> what a ride. Uh, Conrad, what are we doing next time? Well, next time we are leaping out of the 80s and horror into a post-apocalyptic sci-fi action movie from 1995 that quite famously bombed or perhaps more appropriately sank uh. at the box office when it was released. It is, of course, the Kevin Reynolds, Kevin Costner epic... Waterworld. Whoa, okay. <laughs> I haven't seen this movie for a long time. Like maybe since no. I was a teenager. So I'm very interested to revisit this one. Yeah, me too. I saw it in the cinema for my sins. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't remember being happy, but let's see. <laughs> This one has been chosen by our guests for the next episode, uh, who I'm very excited to talk to them about this movie and why they picked it. Yes, yes. There was mention about this movie in one of the panels for Iconicon. I think it was the failed 
uh, toy line uh, movie tie-ins panel where they were yeah, talking yeah. about toys that were horrible from movies that were also horrible. <laughs> and this one, this movie did come up. Okay, I'll have to yeah rewatch that panel before. Yeah, uh, <laughs> before there we was do this yeah, and there was some discussion from some of the panelists. I think Bobby from um, Valiverse said that Waterworld isn't actually that bad when you watch it now. Well, this is the thing. So I'm interested to watch it again to see whether it's just one of those you know famous albatrosses. That actually, when you look at it again. It's quite a fine perfectly flying bird mm. what's the problem <laughs> <laughs> well okay yes. we'll see if it soars uh but listeners <laughs> yeah. if you want to look out for that episode you can follow us on our socials as movie oubliette on facebook twitter instagram reddit uh and also our email is movie.oubliette at gmail.com and if you'd like to support the show, then for as little as a dollar at Patreon, you can get access to extended parts of the show, like the Moobly Awards, which rather than 12 minutes in the episode tends to go on for about 30 <laughs> these days. Yeah, with us we have a lot to say. Talking at great length. <laughs> <laughs> And for $5, you get access to our exclusive monthly minisodes, which are videos these days, and uh, access to extended versions of our special interviews with special guests. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. And also merchandise. If you want shirts, lamps, mugs, all of that, <laughs> you can head over to Redbubble to find uh, Movie Oubliette on everything. Oh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> All things in all sizes. Yes. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this shared nightmare <laughs> that turned out to be a dream. Uh, we'll be back in the next episode. Until then, goodbye. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie That's going to be a problem. There's this other guy here thinks he might be Jesus. What am I going to tell him?